Um, many times compliance officers are part of that middle management, but even if you do manage to stick around throughout that sort of a middle rank cull, how do we keep ethics and compliance moving uh, when the mood at the middle is nothing because there is no middle? And we always talk about tone at the top and mood at the middle and whatever it is we talk about for the bottom. I don't remember the pithy phrase, but if you have this CEO level, this frontline level, and then a very slim uh, middle, what happens when that connective tissue is not there anymore? So, you know, I think that this is problematic. Uh, I suspect if we sifted through all of those business professor case studies, we'd find much evidence that these restructurings don't actually work. But that said, put that aside, we've done this. What does this actually mean for an organization that's gone through it? Well, it means really that employees out in the front lines in the business operating units, they're going to be having to exercise more judgment about how to interpret those objectives set forth by the CEOs and senior executives who are still there. Um, so, you know, you really have to think, what does this mean? If employees are exercising more judgment and the context and the guidance that middle managers traditionally would have provided, it's not there. Um, therefore, your organization is going to have to spend a whole lot more time making sure that their understanding of core corporate values and corporate priorities, that that's going to be very clear because that's what's going to give the employees the guidance on what am I supposed to do here. It's perfectly fair for them to sit around at any given moment and you know they're faced with some circumstance and they think, what am I supposed to do? Most times when they don't know, they would go to their manager and ask, well, what would you do? What do you think we should do? And then we can talk about the training and the policies and procedures and all that fun stuff. But when they have to go on these self-guided adventures in ethics and compliance and policies and procedure, they really need, number one, to have a good sense of what is the CEO and the top? What do they really want me to do? Um, I think also that then it really puts an emphasis on how easy is it for them to access policy and procedure. Um, so we might think about automated delivery of policy. We might think about how much more simply can we make procedures for them to follow? Because, I mean, I am opposed to the idea of cutting middle management unless there is really some clear and compelling good upside to it. But cutting for the sake of cutting really doesn't give it, it removes something quite valuable for the employees um now this is where a cynic and some people would be shocked to hear i occasionally am a cynical person uh, a cynic would note that probably a ceo doesn't really consider that if he's gutting middle management to accelerate all these business decisions and all this fun stuff. But if he is cutting out middle management, that actually means that he or she is going to need to spend more time talking about values and culture and priorities to make sure that that context is still clear to the employees. And uh, I doubt that that goes on, that that's a consideration a lot of CEOs and CFOs think about at the start. Um, I question whether that would even work because if you're cutting out middle managers, employees are still going to have questions. The decisions are still going to get trickled up to senior executives. They're going to have more operational responsibilities to think about. At the exact moment, they should be thinking more about 
big picture communication is my tone clear and everything else because there are going to be no middle managers to help you out with that anymore it's you and the frontline employees and the technology um i think you know compliance officers also would need to think more about how does this affect your whistleblowing program because as we are all fond of saying most whistleblowers first report their allegations to their managers when there is no manager how is that supposed to work it probably means more work for you the compliance officer listening to this because if there is no manager and they are afraid of going directly to the ceo or the executive vp with a concern they're going to call the hotline more often they're going to submit some anonymous tip somebody's going to have to chase that down who is that person going to be because maybe your department has been downsized along with so many others um so the valuable triage in context that a middle manager would historically have provided to help a compliance officer say okay you know this is a real issue we got to figure this out if that person's not there you're doing that work the work's got to get done um alternately and what i really fear and what i really think happens when you cut middle management is you have an increase in what i call the i don't care risk um the fact is if you cut middle management maybe it is going to help you make your earnings targets and maybe the wall street analysts will like it i do think however that when you cut middle management you're probably making your organization a crappier place to work and you have to think about the implications of that if employees don't feel invested in their work in in the health of the organization if they don't see a career path upward uh it's going to be harder for them to sit around and say you know what i really do want to help the company do the right thing why would they they're doing more work they might not be getting more pay that promotion that they might have wanted to get next year that opportunity is gone and suddenly you have a whole lot more of um a temptation not to care that somebody else might be engaging in some sort of shenanigans that the compliance officer would like to know about you're probably not going to know about it and some till someone actually calls you um and then if they're not interested in calling if they can't be bothered where is you where, where is your ability to get to the bottom of this so i think that there's a lot of cultural implications that people have to think through um and like i've said before i'm i'm negative about these things they're fads i don't think a lot of these big restructurings work um and generally you're doing them because what you had thought would be a bright idea 3 or 4 quarters ago hasn't worked already and now you're just going to add fuel to the fire of disarray in your organization there are plenty of people who would say that is exactly what's happened with tesla it's what happened with deutsche bank and i will be curious to see how much this everything old is new again fad goes on um but it's something compliance officers always have to watch for so matt uh actually i, I wanted to maybe uh t- not so much take it in a different direction but ask you to maybe refocus because it seems to me a lot of the things you described uh could be characterized as is more fully operationalizing compliance and, and moving it to the front lines You don't see that uh, as a potential opportunity for this restructuring or at least reevaluation of a corporate structure? Well, that implies that uh, a CEO in the midst of a cost-cutting um program would actually be interested in pursuing that idea. And I think that's maybe a bit of a stretch. I agree that um you know as I think I'd mentioned earlier that you know you might want to look at this as an opportunity to automate some policy or uh procedure dimensions to compliance so that 
employees have fewer needs of thinking about what is the decision I should make here. Um, if you can automate and embed a lot of what they want to do to that compliance end, uh, you know, basically, if you want to remove the opportunity for them to think and get to the wrong answer or screw it up, sure, that's a good idea. But most of the time, number one, if you're cutting middle management, that's not when you're going to be able to float an increase in the IT budget. I don't see that request going very far most of the time. Uh, but number two, even if you do all of that, there still is going to be this need for human element in thinking about what's important. How am I supposed to do this? At some point, the policy isn't going to answer the employee's question. The procedure isn't going to fit the circumstances at hand. And once upon a time, they would have said, what do I do here? I don't know. Let me go ask my boss. The boss isn't there. So they're going to need to think more about, you know, what are the corporate priorities here? Is it to make the sale or is it to do business ethically? And the more you engage in this reorganization, the I think the more at peril, uh, those kind of bigger holistic control environment tone at the top issues are, um, because that's not something CEOs are typically thinking about if they are in the midst of tightening the belt. Um, you know, it is exactly when they should think more about how do we provide more context? How do we get them to take ethics and compliance seriously? But it's also at the time where the real circumstances, how this works in the real world, make that a very difficult message to pay attention to. And it's very difficult for employees to receive and to believe because, hey, man, we just laid off 7,000 people. Sure, absolutely, the company wants me to do the right thing. And I'm sure they care about me. That's not what employees believe in those moments. Employees believe, yikes, I better make the sale or I'm 7,001 layoff and I don't want that. And you know, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about it in these very real frank terms. And that's, that's what's on my mind when I hear these plans. I'll call them that. I could call them other things, but they, you know, plans. But this is a PG podcast. Indeed it is. <laughs> Except when it's not. So uh, anyone else have a question for Mr. Kelly? We're hearing and seeing. Uh, Matt, this, Matt, this is. Oh, oh. Mike, go ahead. Oh, we got one. Yeah, Matt, um, just one other point uh, to, you know, uh, I just read that McDonald's uh, is doing the same thing in mm -hmm. terms of eliminating what they call the middle layer of their corporate Bureaucracy. I know that uh, Elon Musk and his little outfit is doing that. They're, they believe that one of the arguments I've heard is that by flattening the organization more, you increase the chances for innovation. And I wonder what you think about that in terms of flattening a, a group out and therefore supposedly putting people on more equal, you know, status and all that stuff. Uh. You know, it, it, uh, I look at it as uh, in very human elements. Um, sure, it might be a, an opportunity for some lower level employees to come up with a bright idea. And I am all for lower level employees relaying bright ideas up to the chain of command. But um, when you're cutting out the middle links of the chain, I just question how often that is really going to work in practice. Um, McDonald's, I think, is a bit of a special case because so much of its business depends on franchisees, and a franchise owner can engage in more innovation than 
a lot of other businesses that don't have the franchise model. Um, but you know, still, it, innovation, large or large companies when they talk about innovation, really when you push them, most senior leaders only want innovation that helps them do what they already do a little bit faster, a little bit more profitably, a little bit more efficiently. Um, the really groundbreaking innovations that are going to blow a hole in your current line of business, but they're going to pay off in spades in five years. A lot of large organizations uh, that they get very skittish about that. Um, let's all remember that you know if somebody at Apple had proposed in 1999, hey, let's make something that just plays music and we're going to sell digital songs for 99 cents. But even though we're making computers, we're going to get into the music business. If anyone other than Steve Jobs had proposed that at Apple, they would have been flagged as a very interesting thinker, but way too radical, and it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Um, large organizations have a lot of difficulty, I think, with innovation. And, you know, I, again, it, it's a nice idea. There's a certain logic to it that runs into the brute reality that, you know, when you're accelerating the the pace of employee terminations by getting rid of middle management, when the path forward and upward becomes a little bit less clear to people, they start thinking it's not a path upward, it's a path outward. And then they walk out the door with Lord knows what between their ears. But companies probably want that staying in the family. And this is not, I, I don't know, I, I'm just, I'm skeptical that that really would come to fruition the way McDonald's is talking about. So, Mike Volkoff, you wrote a really interesting piece uh, about, I think it uh, posted on D-Day, June 6th, uh, and it started out with a picture of Winston Churchill, um, but I thought you really went in a little bit different direction uh, asking a question that I found highly provocative, which is, is there an upcoming compliance reckoning? Could you tell us uh, what you were uh, trying to raise? Well, first, uh, greetings to everybody from beautiful Sicily. Um, in Sicily, Italy, for the next two months, and it's a beautiful day. Uh, it's 5.20 in the uh, evening here, so it's a gorgeous sunset coming up. Anyways, uh, in my relaxed mode, I ended up writing a, a column, which um, I think there are two points to be made. And I, I base this on sort of watching the compliance profession and over the last 10 years, we've seen an incredible rise in the compliance officer's position in the corporate governance world. Um, but I have also seen some uh, troubling signs that, yes, uh, there's some support from the CEO, there's some support from the board, they're saying all the right things, but when it comes down to it, do they really understand what an independent and empowered CEO, uh, CCO, Chief Compliance Officer, means for a company? Are they willing to back it up with a commitment to supporting independence and also the resources necessary to have an effective compliance program? And I'm starting to see a little bit uh, of the disconnect. And the disconnect that I see is that senior management, the boards are all the expectations that they have now with this sort of new compliance officer role is, number one, we're not supposed to have any trouble and we're not supposed to have any problems down the road because we have invested in this compliance program and we have elevated our compliance officer 
chief compliance officer. We've made him or her a part of the C-suite. They are involved in business decisions, and therefore, nothing should go wrong. And the expectations, I think, could be very uh, disturbing when something inevitably will go wrong because no compliance program will ever be perfect. No compliance program will eliminate employee misconduct. Anybody that knows this business knows that what happens is you reduce the rate of misconduct and you reduce the risks that the government may find out. You reduce the fact that a whistleblower may go to the government uh, as opposed to reporting internally uh, and dealing and giving you a chance to deal with issues before they may become a problem for the government. And I can just see now, because as the economy continues to buzz along right now, but at some point, uh, things are not going to um, be as positive. Uh, and if some company, uh, you know, is hit with some major problem and it, incur and it incurs reputational and financial damage, I can just see the CEO and the board looking at the chief compliance officer and saying, what went wrong? Why did this happen? You promised us that we would stay out of trouble, and now we're here in trouble again. So the compliance profession has an obligation, in my mind, to, to try to educate the board and try to educate the CEO uh, as to what exactly a compliance program does. And I was struck by this because I went to a meeting of a global compliance company at a Fortune 50 company, and the CEO, who's very educated, very you know smooth, very well uh, attuned to compliance issues, got up and gave a speech which basically said, you all are important because you keep us compliant. And that's what you do. And that's your job. And I felt like interrupting the CEO and saying, no, there's more to it than that. Um, this narrow view of you're either good or you're bad if you're compliant, is not, uh, is not the proper role of a compliance function, and you're in for a rude awakening at some point. And this was a pretty major company and a pretty smooth operator as the CEO. And I was struck by that, that there's still the lack of education and understanding, even at a very, very innovative, uh, intelligent uh, you know, group, with, by the way, sitting in the room were 50 to 60 compliance officers for a global, a massive global compliance program. So what does that tell you? So that was my first uh, concern in terms of the reckoning. What, what is the compliance officer going to say when the board member or the head of the you know, audit committee or the CEO turns to him or her and says, what went wrong? Why didn't you do your job? The second area that I see is a more political one, and I get it from my years in the, on Capitol Hill, and I don't see any sort of groundwork being laid or anybody speaking on behalf of the compliance profession uh, on Capitol Hill uh, and in Congress and educating people about the policy. And my concern here again is when we have another Dodd-Frank financial crisis of Sarbanes-Oxley financial crisis type of event, the first thing that I know these policymakers on the Hill are going to turn to is let's legislate compliance. 
let's take all the best practices that are out there, all the things that are already written for them, and let's mandate certain things for compliance programs. And what I worry about is nobody is up there educating those folks about compliance. And uh, there's no real representative organization. Uh, I only just learned recently, uh, and I think it was a conversation with you, Tom, that, you know, like the SCCE, for all the great work that they do, they're prohibited from lobbying because they're a 501c3, not a 501c4 uh, nonprofit organization. So who is speaking on behalf of the compliance organizations on Capitol Hill? And my day of reckoning there is, can you imagine having, you know, a bunch of 30-year-olds with flip-flops uh, sitting in a room and writing legislation on this issue without understanding really compliance uh, and what functions can, you know, uh, be legislated, what cannot, and, you know, how could they end up messing this up is my concern, and that there's nobody up there speaking to them about it. Now, granted, we're not anywhere close to a crisis like that, but if compliance is going to be this new rising star in the corporate governance world, we've got, they've got to take Somebody has to take responsibility for ensuring their position. So those were my thoughts on it. And I'd be curious to see what other people's impression is with regard to, you know, the elevation of the compliance function and, and, and how it's being handled within the corporate world. You know, Mike, um, one thing that jumped out to me as you were talking about this is I saw just hours after ZTE announced its new settlement with the Trump administration and all the embedded compliance officers, and you know, we can get into that thing uh, another time, um, but the chairman of ZTE then said publicly that after this, they will never have another compliance failure, and I just looked at that statement and said, oh my God, he said it. Note the time and place. And I, you know, I almost wanted to take a screen grab of the tweet, and I could hear compliance officers everywhere just cringing at something like that, uh, because you're right. It's not that the company will prevent all compliance failures. They're always going to be with you. It's about reducing compliance failures but not eliminating them and at least demonstrating that you can shift the, the reason for this to a rogue employee who is deliberately ignoring the company, not that the company has got some lax delaysical uh, sort of approach to, to it. But that ZTE chairman, as soon as he said that, I just you know, said, oh, my God, that is not how it's supposed to work. And you don't say that kind of thing. And then I noted the time and place. And someday in the future, I think I'm going to have to dust that off. So, Mike, I yeah. have a question for you. Um, I came out of the uh, corporate legal department, and when we had a legal failure at the companies I worked at, nobody came to the general counsel and said, how did you let this happen? And we, you know, at Halliburton, we had numerous legal failures, lots of lawsuits, we had antitrust claims, we had a variety of claims, and no one blames the legal department, so why would they blame the compliance department? Well, and and I think that gets to what the role of compliance is versus legal. You know, uh, compliance has sold itself as a proactive force. In other words, a forward-looking force that can put in place controls and a culture that's going to minimize harm to the company and protect its reputation. 
And I think once they define the mission in a proactive way, and then something goes wrong, I think they're also, they're, they are tying themselves to the conduct that occurs in the future. Uh, we're going to have a little breaking news here uh, on everything compliance that the uh, United Kingdom is leaving the EU, uh, for those who may not have heard that rumor. Uh, and that's led to something, um, or the, at least the United Kingdom, passing a data privacy data protection law. So, Jonathan, I was wondering if you might uh, talk to us a little bit about this new law and highlight any differences, uh, similarities, or uh, things that the compliance practitioners should be aware about uh, this new legislation. Yeah, um, the new legislation is 339 pages long. So I thought maybe we could just start at page one and just read through. Or alternatively, <laughs> I can maybe just give some highlights. I mean, I think the the complexity of the task is perhaps illustrated by how long the legislation is. GDPR is only about uh, just under 200 pages long. Uh, and the whole idea of this new legislation is it's almost trying to do three things. It's trying to do bits of GDPR that GDPR doesn't do. So GDPR has things like derogations. So how old is a child? So there are bits that are required as part of the GDPR regime. It's trying to, as you said, Tom, cope with what happens after Brexit. And it's trying to bolt on specific bits of legislation that the UK cares about, some of which it's cared for uh, about for a long time, and some of which it's cared more about recently, particularly post Cambridge Analytica. And we're already seeing some elements of the Cambridge Analytica Facebook investigation influence bits of the UK legislation, I think. Um, so uh, in many respects, the third part of, of those three reflects earlier UK data protection law, but there are some new things. And I thought maybe instead of page turning the 339, it might be a good idea to look at some of the new criminal offences that the legislation creates. So the first one, uh, for those of you who want to follow online, uh, is section 170. Uh, this is similar to an offence that already already exists in uh, existed in, in UK law of uh, unlawfully obtaining data, um, but it's extended by uh, saying that it's an offence, criminal offence, if you refuse to give data back when the data controller, so the usually going to be the person who gave it to you, asks for it back. So, as I say, criminal offence. How could this relate to a, a, a compliance professional? Well, let's say we're doing an internal investigation and let's say we got a lot of credit card receipts um, uh, of a corporate credit card, let's say, for that investigation. And let's say the credit card provider said, mm, we made a bit of a mistake. We shouldn't have given you those credit card receipts because we didn't have the permission of the bill payers uh, to give you those receipts for your investigation, because our terms were too narrow. You need to give us those credit card, that credit card data back. And let's say we say we're in the middle of an investigation. 
and we've already disclosed it to X, Y, and Z, then potentially we create a criminal offence by doing that and by refusing to give the data back. And equally, let's say we're doing an internal investigation and we acquire some data, maybe using private investigators who aren't the right sort, uh, if we unlawfully procure data, like happened, for example, in the uh, in the uh, Renault investigation in France, then again, we commit a criminal offence uh, by doing that. So let's watch out, I think, going forward, uh, have a bigger focus on the private investigators that we use. If it's, if it's an investigation that could involve UK individuals or UK soil, we'll need to make sure that we have a proper written agreement in place with those investigators and do, do, do due diligence on them. Uh, the new section 171, uh, again, could be uh, committed by a compliance professional in an internal investigation. It's a new offence of re-identifying anonymised or pseudonymised data. So let's say, for example, we were investigating, I don't know, um, a hospitality at a uh, Formula One track. And we decided that we were going to look on the corporate network to see whose device um, uh, looked at the, you know, Monaco Grand Prix Hotel de Paris package. Uh, let's say the um, the in my ridiculous scenario, the internet provider that we use for our corporate network says. I can give you that data, but I can only give you the vague stuff, the IP address or something of the individuals concerned. I'm not going to tell you their name. In that circumstance, theoretically, if you then try and put a name to that uh, pseudonymized piece of data, then you commit a criminal offense. And then the third major offense is destroying data to avoid a subject access request. So you'll know that under both GDPR and under the new UK legislation, an individual can make a subject access request. They don't have to be an EU national and they can ask a corporation for data. And in most cases, that has to be provided in most cases within a month and in most cases for free. So let's say you decide, hmm, don't want to do with this subject access request. I'm just going to destroy the data. <coughs> excuse me, I'll put it beyond reach, then again, you can commit a criminal offence under the new Act. And then there are a few other miscellaneous criminal offences that are, that are worth talking about as well. So the ICO has bigger powers to serve notices on people or to demand records or to come onto premises, etc. <coughs> and in some respects, the approach has been to give the ICO similar powers to the Section 2 powers that the Serious Fraud Office has in bribery cases. And in part, that's because uh, in Cambridge Analytica, there was a bit of a process involved uh, that the data protection regulator had to go through. It wasn't perhaps handled as well as it could, but it still got in the way, they think, of a quick investigation. So the data protection regulator gets bigger powers. And if you obstruct her trying to get onto premises 
or you instruct one of her team, or you try and destroy data whilst they're coming in, then you commit a criminal offence there. If you make a false statement, again, possibly a criminal offence, uh, and that could occur even, for example, in a security breach. Let's say you uh, have a security breach and one of your people stands up on TV and says, do you know what? There are only 100 records involved, but actually there are 2,000 records. And you also tell the regulator the same as you've told the press. Then theoretically, you can uh, commit a criminal offence here uh, as well. And then maybe just one last thing uh, to mention, or two, maybe two last things. Uh, the regulator can issue enforcement notices. Um, they could be more damaging than fines. Fines, you'll remember, under the UK Act and under GDPR, 4% of global annual revenue or 20 million euros. Um, they, uh, but a stop process notice could be more damaging. Let's say you've got a whistleblower helpline and you haven't gone through all of the right data privacy steps before you install the helpline, then the regulator can stop you operating that helpline. That obviously, for example, for a US listed corporation would have consequences. It would likely have to report to the US Stock Exchange, perhaps. You guys know this better than me because it didn't have a control measure in place, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a stop process notice could be more damaging. Again, if you disobey one of these notices, then you uh, can um, be guilty of a criminal offence. And the final thing to say is that as well as corporations being guilty of those criminal offences, individuals can be as well. And where there is an offence committed by a corporation with either the consent or connivance of a director or a manager or somebody in that type of management role, they are guilty of the offence as well as the company. So it's all about putting uh, the management's hands in the fire as well as the corporation's when, uh, when they do something or allow something to be done that breaches the law. So that's, Tom, not a summary of the entire 339 pages, but perhaps some of the most relevant provisions for compliance professionals. So the thing I heard in there that actually was uh, either the most scary or perhaps uh, the thing I would want to emphasize is the enforcement notice, which essentially can enjoin a non-compliant uh, practice or process. That, uh, um, wow, that, that, you're right, that could be very devastating. Yeah, and the ICO uses uh, enforcement notices already to some to some good effect. You know, for example, there's been a case uh, we had last summer involving health data where a, um, a, a process had been put in place that hadn't followed the right steps. And the ICO in that case issued a delayed enforcement notice. You know, you must do X, Y and Z within a month. And if you don't, then the enforcement notice uh, kicks in. And th th they've got wide powers under these notices. They can ban all or some processing. They can order the eration, uh, erasure of data. They can order that it be corrected. Uh, and they can also order 
uh, either a data controller or a data processor to tell somebody else uh, that the uh, ICOs got involved and ordered this data to be deleted or, or, or remedied. And enforcement notices commonly are public in the UK. So they usually are published on the regulator's website and, and they will frequently attract press attention as well. Jay uh, has a question for you, Jonathan. So, Jonathan, uh, we're a week in. It must have felt like uh, an extended tax season for you trying to prep all your clients for <laughs> May 25th. Um, what's, what's the mood with your clients both in the UK and globally? And it's been quiet from our end so far. So are you anticipating uh, people trying to catch up now or do you, how long do you think we're going to be until we have our first fines? Uh, first fines, I'd say, would be back end of the year. But I think the first interesting cases will, uh, you know, are on their way. There's two big uh, developments. There's a lot happening that I know about uh, privately that isn't public. But the two big things that are public are uh, Max Schrems. You'll recall we've talked about him earlier, this Austrian law student who effectively brought down Safe Harbor. Um, Max Schrems has uh, launched a number of complaints on day one, the 25th of May. The European Debt Protection Board, this new board that allocates, I'm oversimplifying, but allocates complaints to EU authorities, met the same day to allocate the Schrems complaints, most of which are going to be handled by the Irish Data Protection Regulator. And so what happens now is effectively Ireland has three months to say what it's going to do. So we're undoubtedly going to see something by the end of the summer on, on, on those uh, new complaints. On the same day, uh, La Quadrature du Net, which is a French uh, uh, pressure group, privacy pressure group, launched complaints to uh, Keneal, the, uh, the French regulator, they had from memory, I think, 12,000 people, they said, were behind those complaints. I believe I'm right in saying that statistically that's more than uh, the volume of all complaints under French law since it came into being. So undoubtedly, day one was a very, very busy day. I know many of our clients have seen uh, uh, increased activity around subject access requests, uh, either in volume or complexity or both. So I think certainly lots happened. But then I think it's important also that we don't regard, uh, you know, 24th of May or whatever uh, as the um, as the sort of the the end of GDPR preparation. I think not many people are ready or were ready um, on GDPR Go Live Day, and they've also got, um, you, you know, quite a lot of, of of work to do to make sure that they are ready for GDPR still. Um, I think it was Churchill said something like, now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And I think that's true with GDPR. There's obviously lots to do. 
and, and lots to do going forward, even if you have finished, in inverted commas, your GDPR project, data protection impact assessments are a big thing, for example. And I think it's hard to conceive of any internal investigation that wouldn't have a DPIA before it starts. Great. Thank you for, for those thoughts. Jonathan, we've got Mr. Volkoff back. You want to re-ask your question so we can uh, pull it out of the hanging air and get it taken care of? Yes, thank you. So, Mike, what I was curious about, I, I, I see the same as you, this sort of um, evolution of the compliance department, the compliance professional, and certainly more senior people taking that, that role. But my question really was about budget. Have we seen them... Uh, have the resources that they need, or are many compliance teams still, you know, begging or borrowing, not stealing resources from from other <laughs> departments in the corporation? Well, th I, that's a great question because that has been a, another problem that I've seen on a continuing scale in that people aren't getting the resources that they need. I mean, take GDPR, for example. We, I've had two clients who were forced to put together GDPR compliance from America, you know, from their operation here, and they were given no additional resources where they have clear anti-corruption risks, they have clear, uh, they're a regulated entity, and, um, and all of a sudden, these people are calling me, you know, a month before and saying, we've got to do something on GDPR. And that to me is a, a uh, is the other way that, um, and I'd love to see the Justice Department, you know, focus on it. They have, they've mentioned it in a couple of enforcement actions where they found that a company did not have adequate resources to support the compliance function. And I can continue to see problems in that area. And also, there are some basic automated tools that people should have where the return on investment is just so basic, uh, but yet they, they are running a, up against you know, resistance from the CFO, the CEO, uh, in terms of getting this done. And you raise a really good point, and I'm sure you've seen it with GDPR, who is taking this responsibility? How many more resources are they, are they getting? I, an existing staff just cannot handle that, that risk. No, that's no, true. Okay, Mr. Rosen, um, you, one of the things that you do in your role as Mr. Monitors is consider the importance of corporate culture so I was wondering, given that Rod Rosenstein specifically raised this issue at his keynote address at Compliance Week 2018, uh, wanted to know how a company could either measure it, uh, demonstrate it if a regulator ever comes knocking, or actually improve it. Well, great question, Tom. Um, just to kind of uh, springboard off what Rod said at the uh, Compliance Week events, he said, um, Moreover, a culture of compliance mitigates risk, making companies more valuable and less likely to encounter unanticipated costs 
that may result from protracted investigations and penalties. When companies come under investigations, he indicated that the DOJ would ask two principal questions about the company's compliance function. And those questions are, the first one would be, what's the state of the compliance program at the time of the improper conduct? And then the second question would be, what is the current state of the compliance function, followed immediately by after remediation to address any lessons learned? So one of the things that we do on a daily basis is uh, when we're going in and working with our clients and whether we're doing something that's answering to a regulator or if we're doing something from a proactive nature, um, you know, we have to, first of all, with our client, agree upon a work plan. And that work plan may be either looking at certain issues that were raised by the regulator and figuring out how we go about measuring those and how we go about changing them. And from the work plan, what we initially do is after we have agreed upon that, we start working on a baseline assessment of where the company's compliance culture is at this point in time. Um, sometimes people talk about surveying the employees or the key departments that are at risk. And the way we uh, prefer to do this is while a survey can be a general tool and can be useful in some things, it's, um, it's hard to get a lot of that qualitative information. So what we trend, tend to do is go to visit the client, go to visit, uh, if they're a global client, any of the uh, outposts that have had issues, and then we sit down and we have one-on-one -on -one interviews. Um, let's say for an example that there might be a problem with financial controls or third-party vendors. Uh, what we would do is meet with the key members of procurement, uh, finance, budgeting, and take a look at what kind of issues they are facing, uh, try to really dig into the situation that they're coming out of. The other thing that we do is we hold focus groups as well, and that may be with other departments, uh, you know, people who are clients, people who are using that uh, procurement function, using the finance. And what we want to do is, uh, based on this feedback that we get, we're allowed to set a cur current compliance and ethics baseline. And more important, after finishing this exercise, we have the ability to now have a second roadmap on what are the things that we need to accomplish in the next quarter and the next year and during the length of our uh, tenure there, whether it's dictated by the regulators or it's dictated by somebody who brought us in. And both these documents at any time could be shown to the regulators to show, number one, uh, what were the initial goals of bringing in the compliance team? Uh, what were we trying to work on? And number two, uh, once we set those baselines, they get updated each year. So if we're in year three of a monitorship now, we can hopefully tick off the successes that we've had, and we can now look at uh, where we need to go uh, moving forward. So what our hope is is that uh, the work plan in conjunction with the baseline assessment are mutually agreed upon as a roadmap for the compliance work that needs to be accomplished. 
And this baseline and subsequent updates can serve to inform both the regulators or the DOJ what progress is being made. So, Jay, with um, really Rod Rosenstein calling this out in a very public way, it was certainly the first time I had heard a um, uh, a political DOJ official talk about corporate culture. Is this a conversation that uh, you guys are having more with your clients or more inquiries from your clients back about it? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think this is a very... um, interesting counterpoint to the way we started this podcast off when um, Matt was speaking about the issues of the contraction happening in middle management and who's going to be handling the ethics and compliance there. And with Mike saying that, you know, um, CEOs of very large companies are getting quite comfortable with uh, dropping the onus off at the uh, ethics and compliance department, but there's a lot more um, nuts and bolts that have to happen besides just giving that over. So um, I definitely do see that this, uh, you know, idea of where is your uh, corporate uh, compliance tone, where does this sit within the organization and how will this predict, um, you know, future activity? So I think we're kind of at an inflection point and it's uh, whether the glass is half full my glass might be half full, but Matt Kelly's glass might be three quarters empty, depending on, uh, you know, where, where we're where we're perceiving that we're going. But I think to your point, Tom, it is very significant that uh, Rosenstein uh, brings this point up. And I think it's just another, um, you know, another note that the compliance is becoming not an optional thing, but it's becoming something that you have to have. And you as the compliance evangelist are always talking about how do you integrate compliance into the daily fabric of your business. And I think this is uh, something that is uh, promoting that and especially the point of view from the DOJ. So, gentlemen, uh, we need to move on to some rants. We're going to start with Mr. Armstrong, then go all the way back to uh, Jay Rosen, uh, Mike Volkoff, and Matt, we're going to save you for the end because you seem to be very warmed up today. So, Jonathan, do you have a rant for us? I've got a very quick rant. Uh, We've just had a survey in the UK. Who do you think will make the best prime minister? 37% 37% Theresa May, 24% Jeremy Corbyn. But my rant, 37%, I just don't know. I mean, it seems the first time in my memory that we've had people who just seem to be almost disengaging from politics. I mean, admittedly, um, in my personal view, uh, they're, uh, they're not the two greatest candidates But I think we need people to have more political engagement. We need better candidates. We need people to be more engaged. Otherwise, we end up with the politicians we deserve. Yeah, I wonder who that could be. (laughs) All right. Well, we know you uh, you have to rotate off, uh, Mr. Armstrong. So as always, thank you. And we'll move over to Mr. Rosen. Thanks, Uh, So with with a heavy heart, I wanted to just – point out a, a couple of recent passings. Uh, unfortunately, they were both suicides. 
today, Anthony Bourdain, uh, reporter uh, on CNN and an incredible chef and somebody who's, uh, you know, brought the world closer to us. He took his own life in France last night. And earlier this week, uh, Kate Spade took her life in New York City. And, um, you know, it, it's just uh, a, a shame that people who have contributed so much and, you know, have been so successful are still uh, feeling that there is no way out. So I'm just uh, I don't know if it's something that is sweeping the country or sweeping the world. And I don't know if any of it uh, comes is a result of the uh, political and social upheaval. But um, I just hope that people can reach out to each other. And if you are having issues, please, please talk to someone and please uh, take this as a cautionary note. So, Mr. Volkov, uh, even in your idyllic existence in Sicily, do you have a rant or perhaps a shout out for us? Uh, well, I do have a rant, and I, this may be too middle of the road, or everybody's criticizing this, but I, I found uh, our our president's recent comments about uh, pardoning Martha Stewart and Rod Blagojevich, you know, the former uh, Illinois governor, to just be so cynical and so uh, ridiculous in. Uh, the comments. And I'm not even going to point out the part that supposedly this was meant as a message to Mueller and a message to people that uh, may come under false statement prosecutions or obstruction of justice prosecutions. Uh, to me, what was dangerous about this is it reinforces and it continues to reinforce the notion that you know rich people don't really commit crimes. Rich people can get out of committing crimes, the pardoning system. And I know he just recently um, pardoned a, a grandmother uh, for crack cocaine or cocaine conviction. But I just feel that it reinforces the notion that, in, uh, that we have a different justice system for the rich versus the middle class versus the lower class. And we already have a problem with judges who are deviating from the guidelines in white collar cases. And this just continues uh, to that perception in the criminal justice system. And I just thought it was cynical and pretty just ridiculous. Well, that would certainly tee up uh, Matt Kelly, because I'm sure you've got a great one for us today, Matt. What do you have? Well, yeah, so I have something that is probably one part rant, one part rave, and uh, definitely a cautionary tale for compliance officers' radar screens. Uh, so as of today, when we're recording this on June 8th, the Justice Department is now posting advisory opinions on Foreign Agent Registration Act uh, questions. Uh, and while I have not read them yet, conceptually, these advisory opinions are now much like, I think, those FCPA advisory opinions we all used to pour over in the uh, mid to late 2000s and early 2010s about guidance on certain situations with the FCPA. Is this something we should, how should we handle it? And they would publish these uh, anonymized uh, opinions. And now we're doing this with uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which is the law that has been tripping up um, people involved in the Robert Mueller probe who may or may not have been acting as agents for Russia. So <clears throat> here is my point. The rave is, am I glad that 
uh, the Justice Department is now sharing more insight into the FARA uh, process and that people should be aware of it. Yes, I am. However, here's where I get into more of a a rant or a concern. Uh, Clearly, the Justice Department is publishing this guidance because, number one, they want companies to follow the law correctly, and number two, companies are not following the law correctly. So could this be a risk? And I think it is something that companies should give some thought to. Um, Look at uh, incidents such as what happened with Michael Cohen allegedly providing uh, guidance, in air quotes, uh, to AT&T and Novartis. And now we just have this news that ZTE had hired a former Trump administration aide, Brian Lanza, um, to help it get through all of its issues. And that happened shortly after uh, the Chinese government gave a $500 million loan guarantee to the Trump organization. And the Chinese government is a part owner of ZTE. Um, So, you know, we need to start thinking about who is a foreign agent uh, that we need to start thinking about FARA compliance. Um, I think this whole mess, and this is a mess, this is the worst possible world for compliance functions for a couple of reasons. Um, Lots of these arrangements could be illegal, especially if you are not registering these people, depending on what they're doing. So you have to get the documentation right. You have to get the right relationship. And that's going to be tricky alone. And even if you get all of that right, such as perhaps with Michael Cohen and AT&T and Novartis, a large swath of the population is still going to say, who cares? This does not pass the smell test. Um, And this is especially true in this age of heightened reputation risk. And now finally, the the dimension that I think is at issue here, uh, I mentioned at the top of the hour talking about Donald Trump um, and, you know, the G7 and it's Russia in or is it out? uh, We've seen news about that. I think if President Trump succeeds in what he wants to do, which is breaking up this rules-based system of international trade that we currently have, if that all goes out the window, that means more unpredictability, more arbitrary action at the whim of the president. So there will be more companies seeking to court that whimsy with lobbyists who may or may not, in fact, have to fall under FARA registration. And there's going to be a lot of like stuff that just does not look good when it's discussed on social media and your company might get mentioned in it. You don't want to be anywhere near it. Um, and the Justice Department now is giving us some useful resource to try and unravel this this mess. But this is something that compliance officers, I think, should probably consider and try and figure out where your exposures are because I could see a lot of people being caught flat-footed like Novartis and AT&T, and you do not want to get into that situation. So that's what's on my mind today. Well, gentlemen, as always, this has been a great session. Uh, so I wanted to thank everyone, and I look forward to uh, when we uh, reconvene again. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we post our next episode. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.